All right, people. Uh, man, I'm going to try to get this in. I am on my way to get my second dose in the next uh, 45 minutes. I need to get through this podcast. It is Monday morning. I have a huge lineup uh, on the day-to-day. I've got a ton of blurb stuff to do. I spent all day yesterday, Sunday, for the most part, until late afternoon, working on blurb films and stuff I'm doing for them right now. And uh, But there was a little event that happened yesterday that I think you might find entertaining before we get to our standard podcast. So the hike started out normally, so uh, late afternoon. My wife and I and another friend decided to take a little hike, and uh, we were trying to debate where to go. We were like, we'd go close to town, and, and for some reason, I was like, oh, man, I'd really love to go up higher. Uh, I haven't been up there in a while. I'm, I wanna, I'm curious how much of the snow is left and where we can hike and can't hike without wearing snowshoes. And so we, uh, we, we planned to go to this place called Aspen Vista, which has probably the largest parking lot uh, that's on the, tr- on the drive up to the Santa Fe Ski Basin. And we, we got there, and... Uh, Actually, there weren't that many people there. I was kind of surprised for Sunday. And there's so many out-of-state plates in Santa Fe right now because of COVID. People are fleeing San Francisco, L.A., New York, and Austin in particular. And they're coming here in droves, which is terrifying everyone and not something we want. But it's happening. And so I was kind of skeptical. I thought, oh, we're going to get to Aspen Vista and it's going to be overrun. Uh, It was not overrun. And so my wife's like, hey, let's go hike that area, that meadow area that that we snowshoed during the winter. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So we get up, we drive, we get a little bit further up. We're probably 9,000 feet and uh, park the car. My buddy parks his Jeep and uh, we start uh, into this hike. And it's a, it is a, in the winter, it's a cross-country ski only one direction loop. And it looks like an intestine. In fact, a part of it is called the intestine loop because it just snakes back and forth. And there are areas that you can cut across if you want to return early, but we're not in any hurry. The weather is perfect. There's hardly any snow except for little pockets in the shaded areas. So we're about a mile in, maybe a mile and a half in, and we come to this area where the path kind of opens up, and there's this hilltop that's exposed, but it's probably half healthy aspen and uh, with tons of downfall. And by downfall, I mean trees that have fallen in either the wind or bark beetle or whatever. And this is a flashback to me from my childhood or part of my childhood, in Wyoming. And I said to my wife and my friend, oh, you see this area over here? This is the perfect area. Elk love this kind of area, and bears love this kind of area. Because there's cover in the trees. For the bears, you have all the downfall, which are filled with grubs and insects and stuff that they're going to, you know, you see stumps torn apart, and, uh, you know, that's what bears are looking for, grubs. And so, and elk love it because they can, they can run through that amazingly well. When you see a herd of elk run through a field of downfall, it's kind of amazing. Even the ones with the big, big bulls with the racks and everything, they can somehow navigate those trees. So we keep walking, and then we probably walk another 10 minutes, and I look down, and there's a stump just ripped to pieces. And I said to my wife, okay, what animal did that? She goes, a bear. I said, why? She's, uh, oh, because they're looking for insects. You know, and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I'm an expert on the outdoors. I'm not. It's just one of the few things that, um, you know, I've learned over the years. So we walk about another 10 minutes, and we come to this loop. This sort of this uh, sort of oxbow in the or you know in this loop, and there's a little trail to the right that's a dead end that says like overlook of some kind. And this is probably the single most well marked trail I've ever been on in my life. And there's signs everywhere. It's like being at Walmart parking lot. You're just like God. I I could impossible to get lost. So we take 
we're, we're going to go back on this intestine trail. Now we're heading, starting to head back to the car. We're the furthest part point away from the vehicles. We're just starting to make the turn. And I see the little overlook trail. And I'm like, well, we should just go down there and take a look and see what it's like. And so as we take that little right, I look over to the right. And there's the single largest black bear I have ever seen in my life. That's probably 30 yards away, max, just staring at us. And it is a mountain. I saw the shape is what caught my eye. And the bear was in the cinnamon phase, which makes it look like a brown bear. Like the, the hair on its hump and the hump behind the head was the, the biggest hump on any black bear I've ever seen in my life. This thing was a monster. And I said, that there's a huge black bear. And so we just very slowly kept moving down to this outlook because at this point it would have been, if we'd have turned and headed back towards the intestine, it would have looked like we were fleeing. And, um, you know, everything, it's funny when this, this happens because you're like, okay, this whole food chain thing where I'm used to being on the top and now I've dropped down a couple of notches, it's very interesting. And so this thing is just staring at us and we keep moving and we go down to this overlook and now we're boxed in because there's nowhere to go. And you could bushwhack, but it's so dense and thick, and you can't see anything in that in that density of, of forest cover. And my buddy was like, hey, you know, I'm not up for bushwhacking because you can't see anything in there. And it's really dense. And we're not entire. I mean, I, we knew where the car was. It wasn't like, you know, we're only maybe a couple miles away from the car at, the, at max, and you can read the peaks around you to know where you are. But yeah, it was. I was like, clearly, I should have brought extra pants. Uh, Irv, clean up an aisle four. Irv, I was never even in aisle four. But anyway, it was hilarious. The bear, I picked up a couple of rocks. My wife started singing a Carol King song, which made no sense at all. But, you know, we went with it and uh, started pounding rocks and just making noise and uh, slowly walked past that same area. And the bear was uh, adios, amigos. He was probably off. Now, thankfully, we didn't see any cubs. And uh, that would have heightened the stakes quite a bit. Or food supply, didn't see or smell anything. So, uh, you know, we, we lucked out. This was a monster. I have never seen a black bear this size in my life in person. And, you know, you think about New Mexico, you're like, God, you're so far south. Uh, you know, the bears must be puny. But ever been to Big Bend? Man, there are black bears all over the place down there. And, uh, no, we have plenty of them here. Thank God we don't have brown bears or grizzlies. I'm, I'm a bit terrified of those babies. I've seen a few of those in the wild as well. And it's always like, all right, this is 50-50. Where's my howitzer? I'm calling in an airstrike. Uh, okay, that was it. Who is this? Who is this podcast for? For those of you new to this to this programming and this platform, it's life changing. Crying is normal. You might feel a little pressure. Uh, this podcast is for anyone who lives by the mantra "slippery when wet." If that's you, if you're if you get up on a if you leave work on a Friday night and your mind has one phrase locked and loaded, "slippery when wet." I think this is probably for you. And by the way, if you've ever worn jean shorts and a mesh tank top, I think you might like this podcast, a la Wes Hightower and Urban Cowboy. Uh, and Wes Hightower, no, he did not wear jean shorts, but he wore a mesh shirt, which uh, when I saw Urban Cowboy when I was in like sixth grade, I liked it so much I read the book. So if you read Urban Cowboy, the book, if you saw that movie and said, that is the guide, the spiritual guide of my life, is I either want to be Bud or Sissy or Gilly or Wes Hightower. And you said, I need, to, I need to find out what literary gem this movie came from. Then I think you'll like this podcast. 
Uh, hero of the week, uh, twofold. My niece, congratulations to my niece for being selected to a world gymnastics team as of this past weekend. She was in competition somewhere in middle America. And they were like, dang, girl, you're good. And so now she's on the world team and will be traveling to Europa in the near future, hopefully with uh, if they can solve the quarantine issues, I'm sure that are going to be part of that uh, little puzzle to solve. And the other hero of the week is Floyd Landis, the, the quote-unquote disgraced cyclist who won the Tour de France in 2016, who I don't think is disgraced at all because everyone was uh, doping at the time. And uh, Floyd is responsible for the single most impressive bike ride I've ever seen anyone do in my life, which was, I want to say, stage 17, 2016 Tour de France, where he put in a 130K solo explosion after losing 10 minutes the day before. And Floyd was eccentric. Like, you know, you knew Floyd was never going to win 10 tours in a row. He was never going to be that maintain that. But what he had was flair. Floyd was, was, had the potential of the impossible, and that stage represented it. But after he retired from cycling, got through all the lawsuits, and I'm sure hellish part of his life, he started something called Floyd's of Leadville, which is a CBD company based in Colorado, although I think Floyd moved back to his home. He was from either an Amish community or a Mennonite community, one of those. Anyway, he's back, and uh, he makes CBD. And I bought some. And it works. And I have had such a heck of a time trying to find any decent CBD because it, the market's just flooded. When you go to the gas station and you know you can suddenly buy something, that's not a good sign. That means, that means it's been obliterated, the industry. So the best CBD I've ever had came way back when I first got Lyme disease. And it was a 20 to 1 butane extracted CBD paste that I was getting from a dispensary that specialized in elderly people with chronic disease. This was the best stuff I've ever had. The effect was profound. Uh, and by the way, those of you who are new to this whole uh, marijuana thing, uh, there's no psychotropic effect with the CBD. So you're not getting high. You're just getting the anti-inflammatory benefits, which is what was helping me. Then the dispensary goes away. And I missed the delivery guy. He was like 70 years old in khaki pants and drove like a mid-80s Toyota Camry. I loved that guy. Uh, but he's gone and the dispensary's gone. And so I've never been able to find that stuff since then. And I've just found a parade of awful CBD until now. And so I, I like it. And uh, I bought the highest strength and the largest bottle they had. I just went for it, man. I put it all on. I, I was like, I'm all in. I slid my chips in and I said, I'm going to try this. And I did. And so far it's good. I'm giving it to my wife as well. And of course she's super healthy. So she doesn't even need it. And she's like, that stuff doesn't do anything. And I'm like, I don't know about you, but I feel a million times better. So thank you, Floyd, wherever you are. Uh, goat of the week or scum of the week. But this week I'm just going to go with goat because scum might be a bit too harsh here uh, because some, some of these folks, are, it's not entirely their fault. But anyone who still thinks COVID is fake, there was an amazing article this morning about Michigan and the minefield that is Michigan with COVID, they had 91,000 cases in the last two weeks, which is more than California and Texas combined. That is just a bungling of epic proportion. The hospitals are overloaded. Uh, people are dying. It's just a horrible scene. And that just comes from completely uneducated, or I will say undereducated, radicalized population, right? And when you're undereducated, it leads to being radicalized. It leads you to being prone to conspiracies, more dependent on big tech, more dependent on corporations, more dependent on buying physical things. It's exactly what big tech and corporations want you to be is undereducated and prone to conspiracy. So they interview a guy who's like, oh man, I had so many friends that told me it was fake. Thought I had the flu, then ended up on a respirator. 
you know, and you're like, jackass, this has been happening for a year and a half, two years, if probably. And you go back, it's, you know, anyone who still claims that is just, in my opinion, so monumentally undereducated and to the burden that they're putting on the system. That's the crazy part is that guy probably never once thought if I'm an idiot and I get COVID and I end up in the hospital, I'm putting all of these other people at risk, not to mention all the people that I potentially exposed to this. I mean, there was another story yesterday about a guy that purposely infected a bunch of people at a gym or whatever. Again, undereducated. I can't say that we're uneducated in America, but we are certainly as a collective undereducated. And it's proof every time you read something like that or hear someone like that. My wife did a yard sale this weekend, and the signs that she put out said the yard sale starts at whatever, like 8 a.m., 8 a.m., 8 a.m., 8 a.m. So at like 7.30, she's unloading everything, and this couple pulls up, and my wife's like, oh, you know, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and the woman from her car screams, you should work for a fascist organization, and they like burn out and tear off down the street. So psychos are everywhere, and undereducated are everywhere. And as a collective in America, we have to say this is not good enough anymore. We as a collective have to demand from the government that we redo the education system that has to be redone because it's not working. As 70, I would say at least half of the American voting population is is uh, prone to these things. And uh, it's not it's leading us down a path that by the past you know five years, if that looks good to you, then okay, maybe I'm wrong. But if it doesn't, then I think there's some changes we have to make. And the last scum of the week, and I am going to use scum on this one, is anyone who thinks a Miami Vice remake will actually fly on regular television. If you're excited about Miami Vice re return and, you know, with the entire cast, great. But if you think that's going to work on network television, you are out of your mind. It will suck beyond belief. And then it will make everyone who thought it was a idiotic show to begin with, they're going to pile on not knowing how brilliant it was. And when I say brilliant, you might think I'm joking. I don't. It had the best soundtrack. It had some of the best, it had the best set of cameo appearances of any television in history. I think music wise, it was better than any show at the time. It set fashion statements all over the world. The characters were, were great, more uh, memorable. It just was a really well done show, especially considering the time frame. When everything else in our country was like leg warmers and Olivia Newton-John, no offense, Olivia Newton-John, or John Travolta and Staying Alive, those kind of films. The 80s were a minefield of awfulness and silliness, basically. And then came Miami Vice with, you know, a 45, a couple of mags, and an ankle gun. I'm not afraid to use it, you know? That's what we need. Just kidding. Okay. I told you the bear story. Yeah. So, well, you know what's funny about the bear story is my wife goes, were you, were you afraid? I don't think my heart rate changed at all, and I have no idea why. It should have, I, because I think I remember looking over and going, that's a huge black bear, and just I just kept walking as if there was a, like a piece of plexiglass between us. Looking back on it in hindsight, probably not the best idea, but no, it didn't scare me at all. Uh, I figured because there were three of us, and we could make a one hell of a lot of noise, and by the way, you get my wife wound up, I don't care if you are a thousand-pound black bear, you're about to get your ass handed to you. So, uh, you know, we had her on our side. And bears hate Carol King anyway, so that worked. Okay, point number two of this week. One was the bear story. Point number two is crime pays. Remember at the end of the Trump administration how everyone on the left was just 100% certain that Mike Pompeo, Bill Barr, and little, little devil himself, Jerry Kushner, were all going to jail. 
because they had clearly violated the terms of their jobs. They had done all kinds of nefarious things while in office. And oh, by the way, everyone's like, Trump's going to jail. Trump's going to jail. And you're like, yeah, uh, a, a, a former president going to prison in America? Uh, I don't think so. None of these people have not only had, had any negative consequence whatsoever, they are all cashing in after the fact. Uh, Barr just signed a huge book deal. I think Pompeo has a potential book deal. And Kushner made, what, $600 million in the last year of, of the Trump administration? That little weasel, he, he's making money all the time. These are untouchable people. Our system in America, if you are wealthy, you are beyond reproach. There is no—you have to screw up so monumentally and lose all of your friends and have something tragic happen for you to even remotely come close to prison. So the, the, the moral of this is white-collar crime pays. It does. And we got to just stop ignoring this fact and think that, oh, we're higher, we're higher and mighty. We're the good people. We always do the right thing. It's just not true. These, are, these people are not going to jail, and there will be no repercussions on them whatsoever, uh, which is kind of sad. And I'm going quickly here, people, because like I said, I'm on a clock. Point number three are the Oscars. Guess what? I don't care. I don't care. Hollywood is the least impressive group of, group of people I have ever seen in my life. I've never seen a group of people do, do less with more in my life. It is a minefield of uh, indiscretion of every conceivable sort. I was with a friend a couple of weeks ago uh, who, has had, who has worked for a couple of, I guess, international NGOs that have a relationship with a certain celebrity. And, and my wife very innocently asked, you know, wow, she seems like a great person. And the, uh, our friend looked at us and said, She's horrible. She's a horrible human being. She's horrible to everyone around her. And um, this is a spokesperson. So I don't give one iota of anything towards the Oscars. I do not watch. I do not care. I don't care about awards or Hollywood. So that's my feeling on the Oscars. Hey, positive and upbeat. Oh, on point number four, this just came in hot off the wire this morning. The state of New Mexico has passed a... Uh, police immunity law. They, they basically are the second state in the United States behind Colorado to basically no longer allow public officials to have an immunity clause in their relationship. So if they get in trouble, they are no longer immune. Forty uh, percent of all exoneration cases in, in the United States deal with law enforcement indiscretion. Forty percent deal with law enforcement indiscretion of exoneration. So there's a, a, a sort of a system-wide uh, network in place to protect those, even those who do bad things. And there are so many cases of like bad cops that are just for, for decades that are involved. And they go back and realize, wow, this person was bad for a long time. Well, New Mexico, which is funny because New Mexico, a lot of people look at this state as a you know, very poor, very corrupt um, the people will also disparage the state by saying it's the only third world country inside of America. And, uh, but we are leading the nation in so many ways. We're still leading the nation in vaccine efficiency and, and getting it to the public. So there's a lot of things that New Mexico does well, and I was happy to see this. It's not to say that I, I don't think there's plenty of good, good cops out there. There are. I've met many of them in the past in my, in my photographic endeavors from Austin to Houston to Phoenix to L.A., to, to, to other cities in Texas, to here in New Mexico. I've met really good officers of pretty much every single 
you know, Border Patrol, ICE, Sheriff's Department, State Police, local police, uh, all of those folks. I've met really good good folks, but that's not to say there aren't, you know, New Mexico has a history of law enforcement issues that is, if it wasn't so horrific, would be hilarious because you just can't believe some of the stuff that goes on here involving law enforcement. It really is remarkable that it's 2021. It's still happening. But anyway, good good on you, Governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Okay, point number five, stills and audio, my friends, stills and audio. If you have not seen years and years and years ago, there was a film, a black and white. I want to say the whole thing was in black and white, but it might not have been. It was just the stills that were involved. But Magnum photographer Paul Fusco, who I believe is no longer with us, Fusco did a black, someone did a film about Fusco's Chernobyl work, and it was a very, very simple film. If you put it on YouTube today, the haters would slay you for, for poor uh, production quality. And they would ignore the fact that this is some of the best 35 reportage you're ever going to see. And also one of the, someone who completely dedicated his life to doing this kind of thing. Uh, the, the perfect kind of content that would have no resonance on YouTube whatsoever. YouTube is about how fast and how far you will sell out. That is how YouTube works. Every single person within 20 seconds of looking at their analytics knows how to sell out and how far and when and how fast to sell out because it's about driving traffic. And someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, what I like about your YouTube channel is when I see you on the channel, it's the same person I know in real life. And that to me was a huge compliment because 99% of what you see on YouTube is not. And if you don't believe me, go to one of these hot hipster YouTubers and then go to their Twitter feed. Because Twitter is where YouTubers vent about their life. They would never do it on YouTube because they know it'll impact uh, numbers. But they'll go on Twitter and they'll whine about how awful it is and the haters and how they don't want to make films about X, Y, and Z. They want to make films about PQ and R, but they can't because their numbers will drop and blah, 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 blah. It's all the nonsense. But Fusco worked in Chernobyl very, very shortly after the, the accident. And... I, years later, I was talking to a friend, Andy Patrick, who uh, works up at Rome Media in Boulder, and I mentioned this film, and Andy goes, oh, I, I actually made the film about Paul Fusco in Chernobyl, and so it was kind of this weird coincidence. But stills and audio to me is still the single, single most online powerful delivery mechanism for still photography is when you add either sound or music and just have still photographs. And years ago, Blurb had hired someone who was at Apple and they left Apple and they worked for us. And we, he and I, tra were, we were able to do a fair amount of travel together, which was always fun because he was so intelligent and so driven and had absolutely no patience for anyone who was a knucklehead. And there were times where I was like, oh my God, he's going to go across the table at this kid who's giving him attitude. And the kid has no idea who this is and his background and his knowledge. And, you know, we were at a, let's just say this, we were at a very, very famous, the editorial offices of a very famous U.S.-based magazine, which is one of the most arrogant places you're ever going to find. And we were in a meeting, and there was a young kid who was all attitude and no experience. And I literally looked at my friend, his face was beet red, and I was like, he's going across the table at this kid. So anyway, I'm traveling with this guy, we have these great experiences, we end up at Look 3 Festival in Charlottesville. And the city of Charlottesville built this outdoor projection pavilion for the festival. And every night there were like two hours of projections, mostly still some motion, et cetera. We're sitting there and my buddy's on his phone. He's always on the phone. And so we're watching this thing and he leans over to me in the dark without stopping his phone usage. And he goes, stills and audio. It's still the best thing. And I was like, wow, coming from this guy who was all about 
going forward at a hundred miles an hour in and embracing the technology, he was like, stills and audio is still the best powerful delivery mechanism for still photographs. And I was like, wow. So if you haven't seen the Fusco film or you haven't combined your still imagery with uh, audio, you should, because it's a lot of fun. I have dreams of going in the field with my one camera, one lens and my audio recorder and just doing entire projects that way. Will that ever happen with my current workload and requirements? Not likely, but if that changes, then I could, I could do it. That would be fun. Okay, point number six, COVID-19 entitlement. This is a really chafing my ass as of late. Uh, lots, of, lots of friends acting like this is over. Uh, they got their vaccinations. And like I said, I'm leaving here in about 20 minutes to go get mine. COVID-19, India had 300,000 cases yesterday. Uh, Michigan, like I said, 91,000 in the last two weeks. We have the variants happening. Uh, most of the CDC, most of the world now is in level four uh, status, meaning do not travel under any circumstances. But there's a sense of entitlement here in America that is kind of amazingly disheartening. And I've seen friends do idiotic things since being vaccinated for no reason other than claiming that, quote, they deserve X, Y, and Z. I deserve to go and do this after being vaccinated. And it's just incredibly sad to see that happen. First of all, I can only put myself in, in this position. I do not deserve anything based on COVID-19. I am not entitled. I don't think to myself, oh, I've been in quarantine for a year. I'm 52 years old. This is the first time I've ever had to do this. I have an inconvenience over a year. Look at me. I, I'm a work-from-home person anyway. So my life changed. Yes, I had zero travel for the first time in 11 years. And I've spent seven of those 11 years on the road full-time, basically. That changed. I don't care. I do not want to live my life the way I was living it prior to COVID. If I can't learn from COVID and become better and smarter, then what the hell just happened? To get vaxxed and go back to living the life and saying, well, I deserve to travel here and I deserve to go here. I have friends who are trying to weasel out of quarantining all over the world. They're wanting to travel because the rates are cheap and they have convinced themselves that traveling to places like Brazil and Mexico is safe. And they are saying, oh, I'm going to go to Europe and go to this place, but I'm going to fake my, my uh, quarantine thing and blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to go through, uh, you know, if I go to this country after quarantine, I'm like, you're going as a tourist to go to like a museum and your favorite restaurant and you're trying to skirt quarantine because you don't think it applies to you. It is the most unbelievably selfish thing I have seen in my adult life is to watch people flip and suddenly say, I deserve everything because I was inconvenienced for a year. And let's face it, a lot of people, for those of you out there who feel that way, a lot of people had it a lot worse than you did. These frontline workers, these people that had no option but to go into the trenches from day one, not knowing what the heck was happening and putting themselves in the line of fire every single day with COVID, that, those are the people that deserve a vacation, not you and I. We need to just chill out and realize that we are a long way from this being over. I would prefer another year of lockdown for people that have that option. Um, one, I love lockdown. I'm antisocial. I don't want to hang out with anyone ever for any reason, but I know that's not realistic either. But we just need to stop being so entitled. And I think entitlement and undereducation here in America was the recipe and political radicalization. Those three things, that was the recipe for why we bungled this so badly. Uh, we should have led the world in response to COVID, and we had the ability. We just got radicalized, and we were entitled, and we were undereducated, and the combination of those three was like a tsunami of stupidity, and we're still suffering for it. 
Uh, and it looked by the looks of Michigan, it might be here for a while. If we get the the Brazilian variant up here, that's where the game changes again, and uh, that could severely change things. And we, you better be ready. My advice is to buy non-perishable food items. Okay, point number seven: fly fishing. Uh, I grew up fly fishing. My mom taught me when I was a little kid, probably second or third grade. Beaver ponds in Wyoming, fishing for little brookies and rainbows, and uh, <clears throat> I still do it a lot. I like fly fishing. I only throw the dry fly. I hardly ever throw anything that sinks or like nymphing or anything like that, even though there are times when I'm fishing and I know that throwing a nymph or a sinking fly is going to be much more productive. I don't care. There's something about top water dry fly fishing that I love. It's more exciting looking for those calm little one foot 12 by 12 inch little places of, of calm inside an eddy and dropping that fly perfectly on there and just instantaneously that top water, you know, that trout comes up or whatever you're fishing for comes up. Poppers for bass in Texas, that's another one of my, my favorite things. I've never fished for, I have, well, I take that back. I have fished for pike and smallmouth with, uh, with a fly and um, never, never caught a pike on the fly, uh, but I was also never throwing leaders. So if I did catch a pike on the fly, I probably would have lost it anyway. Have caught smallmouth bass on a fly, which is amazing. And um, there are plenty of other places that I would love to go and fish. I, I think about fishing all the time. My van has four rods in it all the time ready to rock. Uh, but it's now that time of the year where uh, I will be venturing back out into the, uh, into the field to fish. Uh, just for those of you who want to know, I catch and release about 99% of what I'm, what I'm fishing for. The one fish that I have on my target list for this summer that I haven't caught in years because of where I live is a walleye. So, and I don't think I'll be fly fishing for walleye. I'll be casting because I'm throwing, you know, spoons and meps and crankbaits and stuff that get down a little deeper where the walleye like to hang out. They're not known as a topwater striking fish. And so fly fishing for them with sinking flies is just not that fun for me. So I'll be casting. And walleye is the, probably the single best eating fish I've ever had, freshwater eating fish. And uh, my father and I used to go to Canada every year and fish. And uh, we would just, in the mornings, fish for walleye and then get keep two or three. And then we would eat them for lunch and then go for big pike in the afternoon. And pike are amazing. Pike are like a hungover high school kid. They will eat anything that you put in front of them. You could tie your car keys on and they'll be like, yep, that's for me. And they would attack. I've had pike come out of the water. I've had my rod in the bottom of the boat with the tip over the edge and a lure hanging down like a foot and a half out of the water. I've had pike come out of the water to get that lure. They're crazy. And they're also prehistoric. You see these things and they're giant, enormous jaw and these rows of teeth. And you're like, yeah, if that was a little bigger, I couldn't swim in this lake because that thing would be after me in, in one second. So I love fly fishing. I love fishing in general. And I know that's breaking the mold of anyone who's around the photography industry or the creative industry. There's, there's so much that people look down on. And this is one thing I've noticed over the years. And my next point will certainly be looked down on, but, um, fishing, hunting, any of that stuff. The, my, my experience overall in the creative industry is there's all kinds of condescension and, uh, and people that just don't know anything about it, but they, they grew up not in these environments. And so uh, I love talking about fishing around creatives because it just makes them crazy. And that's point seven. Point eight is about gun life. Yeah, you want to talk about making people crazy in the creative fields, especially now under the current um, environment here in America. But I had a question. 
because uh, if you go on Twitter, which is not something you should ever do, Twitter is the one social network I'm on. Yesterday, I spent all day making films, short films for Blurb for their Twitter Twitter account. And uh, it's sort of a necessary evil for my, my work right now. If I was not, if I didn't use it for work, I would delete it tomorrow and I would never go back. It's, it's, it's a minefield of just insanity is what tw Twitter is for the most part. And there's a lot of people online right now expressing faux outrage at gun violence in America. I mean, just venting, a lot of photographers too, venting all day long, every day about gun violence, but then doing nothing about it. This is called the send generation. These are people who think that tweeting actually does something and changes the world. And so they, th that's what they'll do. They express faux outrage on Twitter, and they're like, I'm really doing something, and I'm getting involved. But when you say, why don't you go to canvas your neighborhood house to house? No, I'm not doing that. You know, they're sitting at home, either watching TV or surfing the web or, what, or you know, promoting themselves, whatever. But my question was this, because a few of the people that I know, actually quite a few, I started making a list in my head of who these people are that are some of my most vocal friends in terms of expressing outrage about gun violence are also gun owners. And my question to you is, what percentage of the people expressing outrage about gun violence in America are gun owners? And I think you would be surprised how many people are gun owners and how many people lie about being gun owners. I can think of six of my friends off the top of my head just since I started talking about this point, I can think of six people off the top of my head that do this exact same thing. They express outrage about gun violence, they own guns, and they lie about owning guns. We've talked about it, but they would never admit to anyone that they have this. So that to me, I mean, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy. And by the way, the gun violence here is just, it's off the charts. There, it's, it's incomprehensibly bad. There are plenty of other countries in the world where there's plenty of guns, but nobody takes it out in the violent ways that we do. We've sort of cornered the market on that. We've got to make changes. We have to, we have to reform because it's getting worse and worse and worse, and now it's commonplace. It becomes to the point where we've just accepted the fact that every day there's going to be a, a, public, a shooting somewhere, and that's just part of our, our cultural fabric now, and that has to change. It's just idiotic and wrong, and a lot of people are getting hurt. So I do think that we have to, number one, reestablish what gun laws we have. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gun laws. We have to simplify, consolidate, and move forward with the ones that make sense. We also have to take into consideration how many guns are on the streets already, not registered, so we don't know where they are, who has them, what they are. And vast majority of these weapons are made overseas now. And so you've got a problem with overseas manufacturer and then importing here illegally, which has been happening for years. You've got money coming north, guns going south. It's a huge issue. But I'm just amazed how many people out there are pretending that they're not gun owners. And that's something we have to address as well. Uh, and so I just wanted to put that out there because I think it's interesting. Point number nine, I think I am going to buy a motorcycle. I keep telling myself, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But I also find myself looking at online brochures like twice a day, which is, again, so stupid. Do I need a motorcycle? No. Do I have strategic uses in mind? Yes. And uh, I'm thinking about buying a, a Yamaha TW200, which is uh, a bike that's been around since 1986, virtually unchanged, still has a carburetor. They just put a disc brake on the front, I think, in the early 2000s. Uh, it's, I think it still has a drum brake in the back. It is, it is so basic. Anyone can work on it. You can do your own maintenance. It has a very low seat height. It has giant, a fat, enormous like ATV tire in the back and a fat tire in the front. It's got very little suspension. There is nothing about this bike that is good. Nothing 
that stands out in any category of this bike, yet the combination of the parts the, of the mediocrity has made it one of the most like cultish bikes out there. The people who ride TWs, there's TW clubs all over the place. Top speed is maybe 60 miles an hour with no luggage and light fuel and a light rider and no wind and no saddlebags and none of that. You might hit 60 miles an hour, so it's not it's a it's a street legal dual sport bike, but it's really designed to be off-road. I don't have any desire to do a lot of road riding in New Mexico. It's just too dangerous. There are amazing roads, but I do have a lot of intention of riding gravel roads because there are just thousands of miles of dirt roads here and also accessing places that I can't get in the van. So my project in Death Valley, for example, there's 5,000 square miles of park and I can maybe get to 1% of it in the van. And even in a, when I had my truck, my 4x4 kitted out with an amazing suspension, it would just take hours to get anywhere because those roads were so bad. You know, you're in first gear and low, just crawling in this thing, um, you know, with rocks hitting the skid plates. And you're like, okay, if I've got to go 10 miles on this, that's like a two hour, two hour drive. It's really bad. And so the, the TW would be a way of accessing these places. And also from my house here in New Mexico, I can ride up and camp off this bike. No problem. So I think I might do that. I started riding bikes when I was a little kid. I had a Z50 Honda Z50 two speed with the fat tires and the white fenders. My brother was a really good rider. He was racing motocross. He had a Honda XR75, then an XR80, and then 125s, 250s, and he raced all of those. And so I was around the bikes, and the Z50, I remember I was terrified of it. I was terrified of shifting. I would ride around in first gear, and the thing's geared like a tractor, so I'm going like three miles an hour. And my brother would ride up, and he'd be like, shift, 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 come on, shift, shift. And then the one day that I got the nerve to shift, I shifted at the absolute worst possible place you could shift, right at the edge of an irrigation ditch, a dry irrigation ditch. And I hit second gear and like full throttle and just like went end over end over this thing. Did not get hurt. Bike was fine. Z50 is indestructible. But I've been riding them forever. The last bike I had was a Honda 600 V-Twin Transalp, a dual sport, incredibly popular bike globally, only sold for three years here in America back in the late 80s. Uh, Americans have too much money. They buy a dirt bike and a road bike, whereas a lot of folks in the rest of the world don't have that option. All right, so I have got to run out of here. I'm going to come back and finish this later, but i got to go get my Vax. Hey, people, I'm back. I have no idea why I tried to rush through this when I could have just kicked it, kick-started it when I got home, which is what I'm doing now. So I got my second dose, and um, the music coming through the speakers and the sound system at CVS was some of the worst I've ever heard in my life. And that people are asking me how I feel. I feel fine, except for that. I wish I could just forget and unlisten to everything that I heard. Uh, very, very bad. And uh, I, I ended the last segment with talking about the, the Yamaha TW200. If anybody out there has one of these things, I would love to hear your thoughts. It doesn't, your thoughts don't really matter because I would buy it today if I had that opportunity. Um, they're a little bit hard to come by. And uh, even used ones are hard to come by. But uh, I would probably buy new. It's relatively inexpensive motorcycle and uh, very simple. And I love the styling of the latest model. The black and gray looks fantastic with the black rims. Very cool. By the way, I got uh, out of my vaccination and uh, made some phone calls in the car. My mother's called me like 17 times today. My mom is uh, losing her short-term memory, and it's very ugly and sad. And my mom is the ultimate mom. My mom, when I was little, taught me how to fly fish. She taught me how to shoot a rifle. My father really shot, taught me how to shoot a shotgun uh, and pistols and stuff. He was a competitive shooter. But mom was the first one that took me out when I was little. I mean, really little in Wyoming. We were like... We were 22 in for prairie dogs, which at the time were like the coronavirus. They were all over the place. There were just tens of thousands. And 
they could go through a field of freshly planted oats and just destroy the field in a matter of minutes. And so they were considered a nuisance and a pest. And that was my second job in, in, the, in my lifetime. My first job in my lifetime was picking up nails. Yes, Sounds glamorous because it was. We lived in this, we had this ranch in Wyoming and there was a set of corrals near one of the houses that had been a set of corrals for God knows how many years, probably several hundred years. And every time it would rain, nails would come to the surface and we kept getting flat tires on all the trucks. So I was like tiny and useless and they were like, hey, here's a bucket, walk around for the next 12 hours and pick up nails. And I did and I thought it was great. I was like, wow, I'm... I'm completely employable. This is wonderful. I'm so amazing and talented, and I'm an integral part of this whole operation. Second job, shooting prairie dogs. And I had to cut the tail off the prairie dog as evidence, and I carried a skull can in my pocket, my back pocket, and I would shoot prairie dogs, and then I would go up, and I would I would take, the, uh, take my pocket knife, and I would cut the tail off, put it in the skull can, and then at the end of the week, I would take those in like pelts during the old frontier days where people would walk in with beaver pelts and they would trade for like whiskey and tobacco. I was basically doing the same thing. I was trading prairie dog tails for Jolly Ranchers and Archie comic books. And uh, that was the trade system that we had in rural Wyoming at the time, which uh, very sophisticated. And uh, my mom taught me what took me out. I remember with a Weatherby 22 with a Redfield four power scope on it and taught me how to shoot prairie dogs. And uh, that is a skill that I mastered. Uh, in some ways, I'm happy about that, and in other ways, I'm not happy because prairie dogs now, believe it or not, from what I've read, are getting dangerously near the endangered species. Uh, I don't think that had anything to do with me. I think that has to do with development and loss of habitat, but uh, that's my, my guess. Uh, I just got off the phone, too, when I got back to the, in the van after the, uh, the vaccine. Uh, I got a little call with Rick Elder, who's the director of Beyond Clothing, who is the sole responsible guilty party for when it comes to the creation of AG23. He's the one that pushed it. And um, I wish all of you could know him. He's such, I love talking to him because you can talk about any conceivable topic and he um, is interested. And he also has a really amazing life experience and totally different experiences than me. And he's really fun and always positive and upbeat. And there is absolutely nothing that happens in the creation of this project, the AG23. Like for me, I'll get stressed out about things. Something will happen or something doesn't go right or I'm nervous about something and it's bothering me. He has been through so much in his life and spent decades in the special operations. And it just doesn't factor in on his nervous scale. You know, he just has a different, different scale, but he's so down to earth and he's so in love with photography and it's really in collecting books and doing photo related. We, he's constantly tinkering and buying cameras and doing stuff, but there was a little delay with the uh, slip covers for the second and third issue. So we're, we're about a week behind. And I said, not to worry because I'm not finished with the issue two uh, launch film, which is sort of an overview of the second issue and a recap of how the project came to be and our sort of goals with the project. I worked on that yesterday on Sunday as well. Got by, I'd say about 50% of it done. And, uh, you know, those are delayed. I said, look, I don't have the film ready. And the website, we're still waiting to photograph the product to get the images on the site. But all the features of the of the uh, contributors of issue two, that site, the, that part of the site is done. Jay Neely is the one who did that. And um, Jay is uh, up in uh, Washington State, and he's in, he's in control of the ag23mag.com site. And oh, by the way, he has like a degree in filmmaking and fine art. He's also a really good photographer and a book collector. And um, it's funny how all of us like sort of ended up in the same spot, in the same place with that. But 
yeah, Rick is fun. I hope at some point when when we're COVID safe that I want I'm definitely going to interview him uh, audio for sure and maybe even do it a video interview because I want everybody that's listening to this to know him because very cool dude and has some incredible stories about life in the military and just life in general. He's just fun. If there are more people like him, and he's a doer. And oh, by the way, when I was talking earlier about COVID-19 entitlement, Rick, when COVID hit, he sort of you know looked at the company and said, look, I have, I have people here who are not going to be happy uh, or feel safe traveling during COVID. And so I will take on that responsibility. He's been traveling during COVID from day one. And I mean, international travel, going in and out of quarantine and conducting business. And that's commendable in my book. That's the way you handle things, not saying I deserve to go to, you know, my favorite restaurant in uh, Zimbabwe for the weekend kind of thing. Okay, moving on. Point number 10, Democrats who are actually Republicans. Okay, this is okay. I just want to reemphasize to people, it's okay to be a Republican. Uh, now, in my circles, I would say that 80% of my circle, maybe 75% of my circles are left-leaning. 25 are right-leaning, and some of those 25 in the right-leaning are hardcore right. I know someone who's a very, very, very high-level donor to Donald Trump, um, and I'm still friends with them, and I would hang out with them and talk to them. I don't draw lines in the sand. It doesn't do anybody any good, and just because your ideology is different from mine doesn't mean I don't want to know you or hang out or try to learn from you or try to con you into believing what I believe. Just kidding. Uh, and I have a friend who reached out, and he's staunch, lifelong, left-leaning uh, Democrat. And he kept sending me these emails about like attacking not only the quote-unquote left-wing media, but also just the democratic ideals in general. And then the second Biden was elected, just started attacking Biden for stuff that had, he had no responsibility with because he had just come into office. And that's what happens here in America. If your party loses, you wait for the, the, the new, incumbent, uh, new uh, person to come in. And then you blame them for every horrible thing that your candidate did, which is what right-wingers are doing now about what Trump destroyed everything that he could destroy in four years. And the, and the right-leaning now is like, oh, that's Biden's fault. Up, oh, that's Harris's fault. Up, oh, that's the, you know, the Democratic leadership. That's their fault. We do this to each other all the time because we're idiots. I've already mentioned that. But it's okay to be Republican. And I wrote to my friend and said, dude, it's okay to be a Republican. And he got kind of ticked off. And he said, I'm not a Republican. I never have been. And I said, well, it's kind of funny. The stuff you're sending me is pretty much right out of the playbook. I mean, this is like the playbook that you get in grade school when you're a decent football player, and it's only 12 pages long. And it's pretty much the stuff that's the backbone of all the playbooks all the way through the time that you're a professional football player. And I know because... I photographed a professional football game 17,000 times in my life, and that makes me an expert. And so uh, it's okay. You know, that's the thing. There's labels that we put on each other, red state, blue state. That's insulting. Uh, look at Texas. Texas, red state, sure. Austin, nowhere near red. So it's dumb. We do this to, to drive lines in the sand, and te big tech helps us do this. Big tech's one of their driving factors is to divide us to keep us agitated. I've said this many times before. When you're agitated, you buy more stuff. You are more dependent on those same big tech companies. You are more dependent on corporations. You're agitated. That is why they are continuing to do this. Why do you think Facebook gets busted every six weeks for some horrible thing or some horrible breach? And they just, Zuckerberg just nods and laughs because nobody can touch him. There's a reason for that. It's profitability, and they are driving us apart on purpose. And we have not collectively realized that yet, apparently. But it's okay. If you want to be a liber libertarian, great. Call yourself a libertarian. You want to be a Republican? Great. You want to be a Democrat? Great. I don't care. 
I don't identify my, my human existence with a political party, especially in this country, because they are so flawed and so ridiculously ineffective that uh, they are the last thing that I would want to identify with. I'll identify with a Yamaha TW200. That, has, that speaks more about my personality than my political affiliation. Okay, moving on. Point 11. A couple of weeks, something happened that was tragically embarrassing. And I mean, kind of funny embarrassing, but really embarrassing for multiple sports and multiple people. And this was a fight between YouTube star Jake Paul, who I know zero about. He seems like a complete, you know, beep, typical YouTuber. The one thing that he is good at is getting attention, right? That's what YouTubers are about. I've talked about this many times. He is, he, he's a YouTuber and he has a brother as well who's also a very successful YouTuber and they fancy themselves boxers. They don't, haven't really faced any good competition, but you know they, are the, they have these massive multi-million followings on YouTube and they're good about drumming up noise about themselves. That they're promoters, right? And boxing historically with people like Don King and a variety of others, they, it is very much about promotion and you had... Boxers themselves, Muhammad Ali, for example, was an incredible promoter, self-promoter, and promoter of the sport, and uh, you still have it. But now you throw in MMA, because this YouTuber, Jake Paul, decides that he wants to box someone who has at least a semblance of a fighting background. And of the person he chooses, which was intelligent, is a guy named uh, Ben Askren. And Ben is a former Olympic wrestler and uh, MMA competitor who had a pretty amazing record in MMA until he got knocked out in eight seconds. Uh, I think it was the tied for the fastest knockout in the history of MMA. It was ugly. And Ben is an, an intelligent guy, but he's a talker, and he knows how to get under people's skin. Paul chose him on purpose because Ben Askren is the single worst striker I've ever seen in the MMA. In MMA. He just simply cannot strike. He's a wrestler. And occasionally, you'll run into someone in MMA who is a one-sided fighter. Most of the time, people are pretty skilled. They can grapple. They can fight on the ground. They can wrestle. They can strike. They can do jujitsu. They can do all these different things because that's what the sport requires now. And it requires a very intense skill set to be successful. But occasionally, you get someone like Askren who just his only goal is to get you on the ground, and then you're screwed because he's going to get you in some way, shape, or form as a wrestler. And... But he cannot strike. I swear, if you put me in the ring with him right now, it's 50-50. And I've never been in an MMA ring in my life. I think I have a decent shot. He's that bad. Sorry, Ben. And uh, the, to, to make matters worse, so you, you've got this thing that's kind of embarrassing both sports. Because boxers are like, this guy's a clown. He's never faced anyone. And MMA people are like, yeah, you chose the worst striker in the history of our sport. And this whole thing's embarrassing. Now you throw in the judging panel and the event itself, which I did. I saw probably 30 seconds of the event, and I was so turned off that I was like, this just makes my inner child want to wish it was never born. It was Andy Bernstein. I think it's Andy Bernstein. He's a famous boxing commentator, is on the panel of, of commentators. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? That's embarrassing. I don't care how much money they paid you. Throw in the middle of this five or six concerts like Justin Bieber and whatever. And I'm like, what, what is this? And the preliminary fights were horrible, just terrible. The whole, the hype of the whole thing. Snoop Dogg's on the panel. Don't know why he's on there. Um, Oscar De La Hoya came on and apparently he was not a hundred percent right. He was off the rails a bit. I don't know. I didn't see it, but I heard it was not good. And um, that's not good. And so that was embarrassing. And then there was a guy from Saturday Night Live for some reason who just basically just insulted everyone, and I and apparently that was like the highlight of the whole event. 
But um, Jake Paul proceeds to knock out Ben Askren, I think, in the first round. I was not surprised at all. I, was, I would have bet every penny I ever had that he would that, that result would have happened because Askren is so bad. And by the way, when they take their shirts off, Jake Paul actually looks like he's been to a gym and, and knows how to box, and he is a trainer, and he, you know he looks like a, the physique of a boxer. Ben Askren looked like he left Krispy Kreme that morning after, after being on a 96-hour bender of eating nothing but whole milk and Krispy Kremes. He looked horrible. He looked like he had never seen a weight in his life, that he had never seen a pair of boxing gloves in his life. He just looked horrible. And I was like, this is an embarrassment for everyone around. But the thing is, there's so much money being thrown around. And, the, and boxing historically is incredibly corrupt. Uh, and there are plenty of fixed fights and fixed results and boxers with cement in their gloves and every conceivable thing you can think of. It is the sweet science, my friends, and the people who are good are good and they're worthy of your time and attention because the skill, it requ- skill and dedication it requires to get there is way beyond what most of us will see in our lifetime. And MMA probably is not as corrupt. I think it would be harder to fix these fights, but um, you know, not impervious to, to shenanigans and nefarious stuff happening. But the whole thing was such a monumental turnoff that I was like, wow, I am 100% glad I didn't watch this, and I hope that no one falls for the bait. And the thing with YouTubers is they're not stupid. YouTubers know how to bait people, and when the people who know they're being baited realize the kind of money involved, everyone's ethics just go out the window. They're just like, okay, whatever. You know, I'll do this once. Give me a ski mask and a pistol. All right, I'll go in there one time and do this, and it doesn't, doesn't define me. Yeah, you know, a burglary, whatever. Don't judge me. Okay, point number 12 I just want to hit real quickly, which is about the Russia hack. Uh, Biden announced some sanctions and also announced that they were going to expel a bunch of diplomats, which is always what happens when these things, when hacks like this happen or somebody, there's there's an incident where somebody is captured for espionage or something happens. They always expel diplomats. That means zero. Means absolutely nothing because there's 10,000 more of them and we do it and they do it and it's just an idiotic. It's like moving your, well, I guess that's not a bad analogy. I was going to say just moving a pawn on the chessboard, but that's a pretty strategic move. It just doesn't mean a whole lot. Now, what Biden did that's interesting is made it hard for Russia to get their hands on loans, on money, and that could spark something. But based on uh, happenings of the current few weeks and talking to friends of mine who know a lot more than I do, uh, there's a couple of things that are that are interesting right now that I think you're going to see happen in the next year, and uh, we do not we do not know how deep the Solar Winds hack went. Where they're still trying to figure it out. So that that was a masterful attack by whoever it was. It most likely, more than likely, was Russia, but a masterful attack, and that we have not responded. Although we are probably doing things behind the scenes that we will never know about. But still, it was brazen, and they know they're just pushing and pushing and pushing because of this, my friends. In the next year, you will see two major plays. Russia's massing troops in Eastern Europe, and which, in my opinion, is a deception for what they're doing in the Arctic. They are building bases and making claims to stake the ocean floor, that it's Russian. And they're waiting for these new shipping lines to open, and they're going to dominate those, those areas. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And Putin, there is nothing and no one to stop him. He is a complete sociopath. And we've known this now for years. He just, you know, he changed the laws again where he's in power for the rest of his life. And that is one scary dude who has killed multiple people on foreign soil and been busted and just lies about it. I mean, the, the, the poisonings, the multiple poisonings, the attack, that is a scary dude. Russia is, is working, in my opinion, in tandem with China. And Russia is massing troops as a, as a deception in Eastern Europe. Not to say they wouldn't probe more into that region, 
but they're also using it as a smokescreen for what they're doing up in the polar caps. And the second part of that is China will move on Taiwan. Uh, Hong Kong is gone. Uh, we knew that was a foregone conclusion when they when they took back power. Uh, you know, they claimed that they were going to remain independent. All that we knew that was BS. They're going to take Hong Kong. They will take Taiwan. They will move, and that is a major problem for us because we are dependent on Taiwan in a hundred million different ways manufacturing, um, all kinds of things that are strategic to our world standing are done in Taiwan. The Chinese massed, uh, they have the most modern, biggest fleet in the world now. They massed them out uh, near Taiwan about a month ago as a show of strength. They're building bases all over South China and all over that area. And um, I think that these things will go down in tandem. And the result will be, what are you going to do about it? And that is a very dicey situation to be in. And that is my little bit of foreshadowing. Okay, point number 13 is called A Tale of Two Shows. And I think I'm ending with this because I think it sums up our current situation in America. And again, I spoke to this earlier about the undereducation of Americans and how that is, that is reflected in our daily lives and society. It's something we have to remedy. So I, my wife and I got involved in watching this Netflix show didn't know anything about it. I read the synopsis and it and I said to myself, this is the kind of show my wife loves. I don't I'm not necessarily interested in watching this myself, but she will be very very happy. And when you watch my wife watching a television show, it's incredible. You have never seen a better audience member. If it's funny, she's laughing hysterically. If it's sad, she's bawling. If it's tension-filled, she's literally her eyes are bugged out of her head. She's mouthing all of the dialogue, and she's leaning forward, getting cl as close as she can. She is the perfect audience member. So we start watching this, and it's a show that's filmed in Scandinavia. And, you know, there's good guys and bad guys. It's a detective series. But the main characters are flawed. They are all just wildly flawed. They're doing things that are just not good. They're very, very, very good at their jobs. They speak multiple languages. They are dressed in a sophisticated kind of way. They are navigating through a society that looks very visually sophisticated, that looks architecturally sophisticated, smart, intelligent. And you're like, wow, this is a very well-polished show, and these people are impressive. And I'm glad the fact that the main character is completely screwed up. In some ways, he's horrible. But you're like mesmerized because he's very intelligent and works in a different way. Simultaneously, as I'm waiting to start this program, I'm getting in my portable sauna, my, the best $200 I ever spent, which is for me with Lyme disease uh, is a critical part of my life. I sit in this cheap-ass cheap, cheap -ass little sauna every day, and I just sweat like crazy. So I'm in there, and I'm like, okay, I'll get in the sauna, and I'll wait because my wife's not ready to watch this detective show. So I start flipping through Netflix, waiting, and I see a thumbnail of a television show that was, that's done here in America that has been on forever. Forever. I looked at how many seasons there were, and I was like, okay, outside of The Simpsons, this seems like one of those series that's just been here forever. And I go, how bad could it possibly be if it's been around for that many years? So I hit play. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm thinking, wow, um, very questionable casting choices. Uh, almost a complete lack of acting ability. There are two sub-characters, not... I, I, there are two characters that are in the cluster of main characters that are very good actors. But the rest of them are just awful. And the storyline, every episode, is good guys are good, bad guys are bad, everyone speaks in cliches, 
everything about this. Now, my wife walks up, and of course, she's like a moth to the flame. She's like, oh, there's a bright light coming out of the TV box. I guess I should stop and watch. And she starts watching it, and she goes, God, this is bad. Then, without ever having seen this program, she starts delivering line by line the dialogue before the actors say it because it's so predictable and awful. And now we're both just laughing hysterically because it's not supposed to be funny. And, and I said to her, I go, this has been on for like 10 years. And it gets wild like accolades. I go, that's what America, that's what the, the mainstream American audience eats. It's fast food. Americans eat fast food an average of 20 times a month. It's staggering. It's visual fast food. There, it's empty calories. Your brain is not even activated. You're just like, yep, know what's coming. Yep, know what's coming. Yep, heard that. Okay, good guy. Every episode winds up with a tragic event ending perfectly with a little wrinkle of comedy and then a little tiny bit of self-deprecation by the main, by the lead. And you're like, God, this is awful. Let me watch another episode. And you watch another episode and you're like, this one was worse than the last one. And now I'm going to hit and watch a third one because now my brain is like, uh, I'm on fast food. Now, I will never watch the rest of this. I got my, I got my fill and we had a good laugh out of it. But I think it is very interesting that something like that is so successful. And this is just one example of many. But it, it does kind of speak to our culture in general. And don't think for a minute that I'm down on America. I think we have a million things that we need to correct and do better. But I think every country in the world has those same things. There are no innocents out there. Warfare in the, in the, in the history of human existence, we've had over 14,000 wars, right? It is our inherent, it is in us to screw things up. That is what we do as a species. I am not discrediting that, and I'm not saying that we're ever going to work this completely out. But what I'm looking at is the low-hanging fruit of the stuff to say, you know what? It's not bad to learn a second language. It's not bad to get a passport and travel and understand some of these other places in the world. And it's also not bad to, to just study your own block, your own, your own block, your neighbors, your immediate vicinity, and say what's working, what's not. How do we work together as a collective to make it something better, something simple? Education. Like when I see kids in trouble or orphaned kids or kids that are living in poverty, that bugs the hell out of me because we're the wealthiest nation on earth. That should not be the reality, and it is. So I can go on Twitter and express faux outrage, or I can go to the, the uh, orphanage on the, on the uh, reservation here and see if there's a way for me to help. I can make, I donate money every year. I donate to all kinds of different programs and platforms. In fact, Rick and I were talking earlier about giving our first micro grant. Um, for a tr possible translation thing that would work in the, in the third issue. So we're constantly trying to do that. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but we can do better. And I think maybe there's a middle ground between the Scandinavian show and this other show where you're like, okay, uh, one of these is challengingly, challenging me mentally, and the other one has just killed any sort of uh, intelligence I've had. And one of them will probably be discontinued. The, the Scandinavian show will probably end in the next year because people are like, oh, I don't want to work that hard. Uh, and the other one will go on until you and I are old and, and wearing plastic pants because we can't control ourselves anymore. Um, speaking of plastic pants, I should have had those yesterday when I saw the bear. That would have been helpful. Uh, anyway, that is my podcast for this whatever week, two week. And uh, I will be back with more. Adios.